we getting that? There we go. We can. I'm just confused. Oh, okay, that's why. All right, let's try it all, all over again. First Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Second Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Titus 1, 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. First Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Well, if you uh, think the public reading may be an indication of how this is going to go as far as jumping around, you have no idea. Trust me, <clears throat> we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and it's been a real pleasure and joy to prepare this message. Um, I've learned some stuff, I've grown, and hopefully that happens every week, and I wish I could say that I know that's true, but this week, for sure, man, I, <laughs> what should be a routine introduction has really blossomed into something that I'm really excited about. <clears throat> so... <laughs> Sometimes, so uh, y'all have heard many times, and I wish Raven was here because I'm about to use a Lord of the Rings illustration. Um, I'm a movie guy. I'm a story guy. I really like movies. And I think there's a, a lot of times there's a blurred line between who is a main character and who is a supporting character. Okay. Um, I think one of the greatest crimes against humanity in my lifetime is the fact that Sean Astin was not nominated for an Oscar as Best Supporting Actor for his role as Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He wasn't even nominated. And if you watch that, that's 
some of the best acting I've ever seen in my life. Um, and he would have been nominated, had he been nominated, as a supporting actor. He was not the lead. Who was the lead? Frodo was, right? I think Sam's the best character in the whole trilogy, but hey, who am I? But sometimes it's hard, it's hard to tell who's the main character, who's the supporting character, who's the lead actor, who's the supporting actor. Today, as we introduce our next series, which is on the pastoral epistles, and those epistles being First and Second Timothy and Titus, as we start on this next series, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today looking at the folks that I'm calling supporting actors. And they're the main names in these three books that we'll cover. Paul, Timothy, Titus. So Paul wrote the books, which are letters. The word epistles means letters, letter or series of letters. And Paul wrote these epistles, these letters, to Timothy and Titus. And I'm saying that Paul and Timothy and Titus are supporting actors in this Story, And again, it's a historical, historical account. Don't read too much into the fact that I'm saying story. It's just a, a, a colloquialism. Um, and there, but there's a fourth character who is really the main character. And, and here's a hint. It's not God and it's not Jesus. Even though God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit is always the central attraction and the force behind everything. But there's a fourth character in these stories, in this story that I believe is the main character. And we'll get to the end of that. We'll get to that at the end of the message. I'm going to leave you hanging with that a little bit. That's, that's what we do as public speaking, right? We get you on the hook, right? So you'll have to wait till the end of the message to see who that fourth character is, and it's not God or Jesus, okay? So let's jump in. Now, the first person that I want to focus on, our first supporting role, is Paul. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Apostle Paul, his life, his ministry, um, but we're going to do a, a quick, I hope quick, survey of what we learn about Paul through the book of Acts. We're going to see some stuff from Philippians. We're going to see some stuff from Galatians as far as who this man was. And I hope you get to know Paul a little better this morning. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 7. Uh, 58 through chapter 8, verse 3. So this is where we meet Paul in the Scriptures for the first time. And this is right at the end of the account of the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, the first Christian martyr who the Jewish leaders stoned because he testified against them that they killed Jesus and they couldn't stand it. And they now remember, these Jewish leaders hate the, the, what they called the way. And the way being the, the following, the, following the teachings and life of Jesus. We'll get to that too at a certain point. But here's Stephen, who was a deacon in the early church there in Jerusalem, and he's being stoned. Now watch this. Then they, those who uh, are persecuting Stephen, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now watch this. And Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, so first of all, we see our first mention of Paul in this account, but you'll notice it doesn't say Paul, right? Instead of Paul, they call him Saul here. And Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke had a lot of intimate contact with uh, Saul slash Paul. So he's calling him Saul here, and it was very common in the Roman Empire to have a birth name and a Roman name, or some would call it a Greek name. You might say Greco-Roman, okay? So this man here, his birth name, his Jewish name was Saul. And that word Saul means desired. And then his Greek or his Greco-Roman name was Paul. Some people would say, God took Saul and turned him into Paul. No, he didn't. That's not true. He just had two names. Anybody got a nickname or a name that they call you in a different setting? Saul was Paul. Paul was Saul. Okay? Hope that's clear as mud. But here's our first reference to this man that we're going to talk about this morning, our first supporting actor in our narrative today. So when we first meet Paul or Saul, and I'll use those names interchangeably just so you know, he's at the execution of a follower of Jesus named Stephen. And it says that Paul was in hearty approval of his execution, not hardly approval like Will was saying, he was in hearty approval of, his, of Stephen's execution. Why? Because he, Saul, hated this new way that some people were following, which focused on the life and teaching of the rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus. Jesus, who had been crucified just a few months prior. And in Saul's mind, this way, this new faith, would have been a perversion of the ancient Jewish faith. And Saul who was devoted to the ancient Jewish faith, who was actually a Pharisee. We talked about the Pharisees back in Matthew a lot. And, and Saul himself gives us some, um, some detail about his upbringing in Philippians. I don't have Philippians 3 up here or the, these next two sections, so bear with me. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. This is Paul speaking later about who he was. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's Paul's testimony about himself in his pre-conversion life. Okay? Later on in Acts, he's going to tell the story of his conversion. And he says this in Acts 22, verses 3 through 5. I did have it up there. What a man I am. Acts 22, 3 through 5. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. So Tarsus is a city. Cilicia is a region up in northern Palestine. But brought up in this city, he says about Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Galamiel, According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's testifying to the Pharisees. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay? So this is Paul's testimony of his earlier life. And he says, I was a persecutor of this new way. And I was dragging people, basically I persecuted this way to the death. Keep that in mind. Binding, delivering to prison both men and women. And he got letters from the leaders, the Jewish leaders, to go to a place called Damascus, which is way up north from Jerusalem. It's modern day Syria. To take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's going all the way up north to find new believers of this new way and he's going to arrest them and he's going to bring them down to Jerusalem so that they can be tried for heresy and be found guilty, which could lead to stoning, which could lead to death or imprisonment. Settle down now. So that's where we're at right now. But something happened on Saul's way to Damascus. He met that guy, Jesus, who had been crucified, but he found out Jesus wasn't dead. And it was quite a meeting. Acts 9. We're going to start in... I've got the wrong verse here. Okay, so we're all right. No, I don't. These headings are wrong. I'm sorry. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. And neither ate nor drank. Let's pause there for a second. So here goes Paul breathing out threats and fire and venom. And he's going to the, up to Damascus, all the way to Damascus. And I'm going to bring these jokers back here. They want to pervert the faith that I'm so fond of and that I love so much. They want to dishonor God with this new rabbi's death. No way, that's not happening. Now, boom! And this great, great light, brighter than the noonday sun, he would say at another point, shows up and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he don't know who it is, but he knows he's the boss. Who who are you, Lord? And Jesus himself, there in front of Saul, says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, note that. What was Saul doing to Jesus? Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, right? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, who was Saul persecuting? The church. These followers of the way. Keep that in mind. Now, verse 10. Now, oh, yeah. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So there were believers in Damascus. Saul was right. Ananias says, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to Ananias, Rise and go to the street called Straight, Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. (laughs) And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Jonah, I mean Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So... Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, on him, he said, Brother Saul, interesting, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, don't miss this. It can sound storybookish. It can sound movieish. This really happened. And this vile persecutor of the church gets blinded by the light, literally, but he sees better than he's ever seen when he can't see physically. And he believes on Jesus. God speaks to this guy up in Damascus, hey, go pray for this guy. Okay, I'll go. He goes, he prays, something like scales fall off his eyes. He can see, and he gets up and he's baptized. Immersed and proclaims that he is now a follower of this way that he was persecuting. That he is now a disciple of the Lord who showed up to him on the way to Damascus. And taking food, he was strengthened. And then it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He, Jesus, is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now again, here's this terrorist. Come to drag people out of their house. He meets a guy named Jesus on the way up there. He gets saved. He's miraculously changed, which is what God does when he saves you, by the way. And then he goes out and he starts saying, hey, what I came up here to persecute, I was wrong about that. It's true. Jesus is the Son of God. And they're going, hey, 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 wait a second. You came up here to to take us to Jerusalem for saying that. Now you're saying it. What's going on here? And I can just imagine that this is totally, now this is fabricated in my mind. I can just hear him saying, let me tell you what happened to me. I was on my way up here to get you guys. And I met him. I saw him. I heard him. And he changed me. And you are right. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And they're going, wow. To the point that he's confounding the Jews. His would-be comrades up here whom he would have teamed up with to persecute the way. Now he's saying, you guys are wrong. We were wrong. I was wrong. Jesus is the Christ. To the point that these Jews, these fine Jews, are confounded. And and Paul, Saul, proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. Now, watch this. So from Damascus, something happens. 
And we don't get this in Acts. We've got to go to Galatians to get this piece of the puzzle. Paul tells us himself. Galatians 1, 11 through 17. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, now note that, and who called me by his grace, when that one was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach them among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So th- we, we don't get this in Acts, but we get it here in Galatians. Paul says that he... I had a map. Did I miss my map? He says he left Damascus and went into Arabia... And spent some time there. I don't have my map. This presentation is sorry, and I'm sorry for it. So, anyway, so Paul leaves Damascus, and he goes into... So he's in upper northern Palestine, and... You're welcome. (laughs) So up here up north, and you can't really see it. It says Damascus up there on the mainland with a little flag. Thank you very much, John. And so that little trip there is his trip down into Arabia. We know Arabia, right? And Paul spends some time there. He spends a long time there. And while he's there, he receives a direct revelation from God himself about the gospel that Paul was to proclaim. Paul knew that Jesus was the Son of God and he could reason that from the Jewish scriptures But in this time, he leaves Damascus, goes down into Arabia, and he spends some time one-on-one with God himself. And during that time, God reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ to Paul. Now listen to me. This is pivotal. We're going to talk a little later about who Paul is and what your opinion of Paul is. But he says here in Galatians... The gospel that I preach is not a man's gospel. It's not something I figured out. God gave me this gospel. Now, what? anybody hesitant about some guy who goes off in the desert somewhere and has a vision of God and says, I received a direct revelation from God himself and this is the truth? Sounds like a cult, right? Joseph Smith, Muhammad... Right? Same thing. He went to a cave. And God gave him the the literal direct text of the Quran, which is a a direct copy of the very text in their heaven, their paradise. Interesting that the devil always imitates what God does. Paul's in a cave or somewhere. He's in the desert somewhere in Arabia. And God shows up. And God says, this is the gospel. 
The gospel that Saul was going to preach going forward was a direct revelation given to him. He says it's not man's gospel, for he didn't receive it from any man, nor was he taught it, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And from Arabia, where he received this revelation, he goes back to Damascus, where things started, and they start to get interesting for him. Now go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 26. What a man. You're, you're doing fantastic, John. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So he left. Um, no, we should be in 23. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll read it. We'll come back to this. Acts 9, 23 through 25. When many days had passed, now that he's in Damascus. Now he's left Arabia, come back to Damascus. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now Paul's going to have a lot of near scrapes and he's going to get beat up a lot. This is the first time he's actually got to sneak out of town because they're coming for him. They're watching for him. They're going to kill him because they've got to silence this guy. He's talking too much and he's too powerful. So they've got to kill him. Okay, so from here, from Damascus, he makes his first trip to Jerusalem after his conversion. And again, we're talking years later, okay? Acts 9, 26 to 30. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And look at these guys. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him. And we won't talk anymore about Barnabas this morning much. And brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Okay? So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Those are the Greek thinkers. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, that they were seeking to kill him in Jerusalem, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is his home, back, back where he was raised. Okay, So they're trying to kill him in Damascus. He escapes to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. The apostles don't believe he's a real believer, so they're avoiding him. Barnabas says, hey, hey, hey. Me and this guy, we've got a thing going. I know him. He's good. Listen to him. So he's going in and out. And he gets so effective there in Jerusalem, they want to kill him there. Okay? So they said, hey, you better get out of here. Go back to your hometown. Go back to Tarsus. But something else happened in this time in Jerusalem. Acts 22, 17 to 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Again, sounds so bizarre, so weird. And saw him saying to me, Jesus saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now watch this. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed, you, believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, watch, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Again, this is big. So while Paul is in Jerusalem and he's going in and out and he's preaching, he has a vision and Jesus says, get out of here. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are non-Jews. In the Jewish mind, there were two groups of people in the world, Jews, Gentiles. Jews, Gentiles. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. 
And what does God say to him here? I will send you, Paul, to the Gentiles. This is a big moment in the life of Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul. God makes it clear that his ministry is going to be to the non-Jewish people. Look at Galatians 1, 21 to 24. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now that's up north from Jerusalem. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then he ends up in Antioch, which is a town up north. And this is where things really start to roll, okay? Verses 19 to 26, Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember him? Remember it says they were persecuted and they were scattered. All those people traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So these people that were scattered and are preaching this new gospel are only preaching to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, again the Romans, the Greek thinkers, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. These are not Jews. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Remember him? When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, where all these Gentile believers are starting to flood in. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. By the way, that's like a name. That's like making the Christians a little Christ. Y'all think it's not a compliment. Okay? So they kind of settle in there for a year. And they're teaching this church that's now Jews and Gentiles. And things are going pretty good. Then something comes up. Acts eleven twenty seven to 30. Now in the, these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending this relief to the elders by the hand of huh, Barnabas and Saul. Okay? So they go down... And they take this um, relief to the, the people who are affected by this famine down in Jerusalem. And so Barnabas and Saul take this money that they gather, kind of like we're taking an offering today. They took up an offering for the people hurting in Jerusalem from the famine. And Barnabas and Saul take it down and they have interaction with the people down there. Now, watch this. They come back up to Antioch and then in Acts 13... Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. There's our guy. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This will begin the section of Paul's life, which we call his missionary journeys. Okay, And there are three that are clearly revealed in Acts 
And if you look here, come on, I'm going to change it. There we go. Okay, so you can see there on the right, Antioch. That's where they start. And they go off to Cyprus, this, this island there, and then they go up into the mainland and they cut across and they come back, retracing their steps, and they come back and they end up back up at Antioch. Okay? Now, lots and lots and lots happened on these journeys. And there were, here's the second one, you'll see that the, the, the growth is going further away, right? And then the third missionary journey, which is cut short because of some things. Again, he's kind of going back, and he actually comes back through the mainland instead of coming back through the sea. So there's a lot of travel, a lot of movement, a lot of time, and a lot of people that Paul is introduced with. And what I want you to understand is that his mode of operation during these missionary journeys is really, really weird. Okay? So listen, this guy named Saul who they'll start calling Paul pretty much from his first missionary journey on because he's in the Roman world now. He's not in the Jewish world, so they'll call him Paul. That's why you see the change in the scriptures there. On this first journey, when he heads out, he's going to set a tone. And what he's going to do, he's going to blow into town this guy who used to be a Jewish persecutor of the way, blows into town and he preaches a gospel that nobody has ever heard before about a man who was killed and came back to life and will forgive your sins if you ask him to. Now, we take that for granted. These people had never heard this gospel. It was a new gospel. And Paul would probably say, by the way, I received this as a direct revelation from God himself. And they're like... (laughs) When he goes to Athens, they literally laugh at him. They're like, this dude is a vain babbler, but I want to hear more. It's just so interesting, right? So he shows up, he preaches a gospel that nobody's ever heard before about a man who died and came back to life and is sitting in heaven now and showed up to Paul on the way to Damascus one day. And the crazy thing is people believe and are saved. That's crazy. And then Paul goes out of town. He leaves. It's not very often that he spends a long period of time in any of these towns. He blows into town, preaches this gospel. People believe, yay, there's a church planted. So Paul, let's pastor this church and now i got to go. And he leaves these baby believers in this brand new gospel that they've just heard and he leaves. That's not good church planting etiquette. Nurture your church, Paul. Ain't my church. It's not my church i got other places to go where they need churches established. So I'm going to blow into that town, preach a gospel they've never heard before. People are going to believe, and then I'm going to leave again. And that's his pattern as you follow these missionary journeys. He goes into a town. He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews. Usually the Jews say, get out of here, you loser. So he goes out and he preaches to the Gentiles, which is, God, which is what God told him to do. People believe, he leaves. Sometimes forced by persecution, sometimes just to go to the next town. And sometimes there were return trips. If we can go back to that second trip. On the second trip, something happens. Acts 14, verses 19 to 23. This is on Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, He's going from town to town. And remember, he had come from Antioch. Jews came from Antioch to Iconium, where Paul was. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But... When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. 
When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And watch this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now this is going to be a really big concept going forward, especially in the pastoral epistles. With prayer and fasting, they committed them, these new believers, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul goes into town, he preaches a new gospel, people believe, he leaves, he comes back through, okay, you've grown up some, you've grown up some, you've grown up some. God, are these the elders? These are the elders. Appoint them as elders. Okay, your elders, see you, take care of everybody. So these baby Christians who are a little bit more further understanding and given understanding by God in their faith, all of a sudden they, they're elders. Paul appoints them as elders and says, take care of them, I'm out of here. And I love this statement. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Not my church. It's God's church. And we're going to commit these believers to the Lord. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Paul said, it ain't my church, it's your church, so I'm going to commit them to you and I'm out of here. That's crazy. That's crazy. Foolishness, you might say. Then in Acts 15, there's a doctrinal fight to engage. And this is leading us somewhere, okay? Acts 15, 1 to 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. He's back in Antioch at this point. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now these guys are Jews and they come from Judea. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these are Judaizers. Now this is incredibly important. Incredibly. Wake up, pay attention. Okay? Because what's happening is everywhere Paul goes, there's people coming behind him saying, I know you heard this stuff from this guy named Paul, and he's partially right. But if you're going to really be a follower of God, if you really want to worship God, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep Jewish customs because that's the law. Okay? And so now these people have come up from Judea, from the the original church there in Jerusalem, and they're spreading this stuff. And Paul and Barnabas are like, "Uh uh-uh. This ain't going to work. So they go back down to Jerusalem. Now watch this. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. This is Paul's account of it later in Galatians. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. We'll we'll talk about him in a minute. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now stop a second. So what's he doing here? He's presenting this revelation that he had received from God to the original apostles. And he's saying, does this check out? Does this, meet your, does this make sense to you guys? And they're like, yeah. 
Okay, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped into spout our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul said, Judaizers, I ain't listening to you. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians, who were Gentiles, by the way. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine of the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, James, Peter, John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So when he goes back and he's talking, he finally submits everything to the apostles who listen to him and say, this is good. So so you go to the Gentiles. Right hand of fellowship means we're with you. We're one. We'll go to the Jews because we've got Jewish backgrounds. You've got Jewish background, but you're already doing this work among the Gentiles. God said you should go to the Gentiles, so go to the Gentiles. Take this gospel that you're talking about, and don't listen to these Judaizers. We didn't send them. That's what they'll end up saying. So Paul goes out, and he goes on more journeys. Having dealt with the doctrine, it's time for another trip, but not without incident first. Acts 15, 36 through 41. We're almost done, y'all. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. So on one of these trips, there was, John Mark was with them and he got homesick. And he went home to his mommy, we guess. I don't know where he went. I'm just, he didn't stick out with them. Though, and Paul's like, I'm not taking him. He's a deserter. Barnabas is like, come on, Paul. So they split up. It says there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthened the church. Now, this is the second trip. I said earlier that was the second trip. I was wrong. And on the second journey, Paul meets. Okay, we're, we're going to leave Paul now. Well, not really. But we're going to meet our second supporting person slash character that we need to look at today. A guy named Timothy. Acts 16, 1-5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That's a no-no, by the way, but now it's not. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those pl- places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now that's weird. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? We'll talk about that later. We're not going to get there today. Okay? But he's in Derby and Lystra, Lystra and Iconium, and he meets this guy named Timothy. Everybody's talking this guy up. He's a young guy. Timothy, oh, Timothy, you need to meet Timothy. Timothy's a good guy. He, he loves this gospel that you're talking about. Paul says, I like you, Timothy. Won't you come with me? And he does. 2 Timothy 1, 5 to 7, we learn a little bit more about Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Paul says to Timothy in the letter of 2 Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. 
For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So that gives us a little insight into who Timothy is. He grew up in a believing household, or at least his mom and his grandma believed. His father was a Greek. We don't know that his father believed or not. We just don't know. But we know that his mom and his grandma believed, and they had taught him this faith that he was growing in. And Timothy ends up traveling with Paul on his journeys. And Timothy ends up being sent on several assignments through these journeys, showing the trust that Paul had in him. And by the time we get to the writing of 1 Timothy, which we'll start in next week, Lord willing, Timothy is in Ephesus, which is a major metropolitan area in the Roman world at the time. And Timothy is serving as an elder, as an overseer, helping oversee the church in that giant area, helping ensure that things are going as they should. And that's where we'll meet Timothy next week when we start in 1 Timothy. But what we need to know about Timothy is his mom and his grandma had taught him the faith. He grew up in the faith. Paul met him there. Paul said, come with me. He comes. He gains Paul's trust. Paul sends him out on a bunch of different things and ultimately sends him to Ephesus. It's said that Timothy ends up dying in Ephesus, by the way. As he looks at some pagans doing some stuff and he's like, that's really stupid. That's kind of the the tone you get from what Timothy did. And they stoned him for it. They killed him. So he spends most of the rest of his adult life in Ephesus in that church, and that's where we're going to meet him next week, okay? So there's Paul, there's Timothy. Titus, quickly, he's, he's the shortest of these, okay? There's no record in the Scriptures detailing how Titus and Paul met. I've got a little snippet here from the Lexham Bible Dictionary that gives us some details. Titus's name is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, but our only sources are sporadic references in Paul's letters. Titus is never mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles. This work is a selective chronicle not intended to be an exhaustive account of Paul and his associates' activities. Titus's career can be reconstructed from Paul's epistles and later traditions. Titus may have been from Syrian Antioch, Antioch in Syria, and probably lived there when he began to work with Paul. In Galatians 2.1, Paul describes that he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus likely departed from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas' primary base. Galatians 2.3 describes Titus as being Greek. So he's a, a Gentile. The term used for Greek can mean either a true Greek or a non-Jewish individual. The epithets that Paul used to describe Titus illuminate their relationship. In Titus 1.4, Paul calls Titus his true son in our common faith. Paul typically uses this language to describe his converts, people that were converted because of his preaching, Paul's preaching. Titus as a convert of Paul may support the view that he came from Antioch, where much of Paul's early evangelistic activity happened. Paul also calls Titus his brother, his partner, his fellow worker. And Paul entrusted Titus in a number of difficult missions. While he was Paul's subordinate, Titus was given, quote, considerable discretion in delicate assignments and virtual autonomy on others. Okay? So that's this guy, Titus. And Titus is mentioned in Paul. The fact that Titus is mentioned in Paul's letter to the Galatians means that he was an early associate of Paul because Galatians is probably Paul's first letter that he wrote. And the fact that he was mentioned there means that Titus was around from Paul's earliest ministry days. So when we get to the letter of Titus, which will be after 1 Timothy, we're going to do 1 Timothy, Titus, then 2 Timothy, and we'll tell you why as we get there. When we get to Titus, Titus is on the island of Crete, which is about 100 miles southeast off mainland Greece. 
And Titus is there in Crete to help establish the churches in the towns there on Crete. So there's Paul, Timothy, and Titus. Now, that brings us to our main character in all this. I know you've just all been on pins and needles waiting for me to announce who this is, right? And while we'll learn a lot more about Timothy and Titus as we go through their letters, we're going to learn even more about the main character through these letters. And that main character is the church. Paul, Timothy, and Titus are all about the business of doing what? Seeing that the church is what she's supposed to be. And while the word church in all three letters is used to combine three times, and that's only in 1 Timothy. The word church is not used in Titus or 2 Timothy. It's used three times in 1 Timothy, and that's it in all three books. Even though the word isn't used, the church is the central focus of these three letters. And I can't say that strongly enough as we move forward. These three books are about the church. And the church is the main character in all of them, even though she's not mentioned so much. The instructions and the directions that Paul is giving to these young pastor elders... The instructions are for the upbuilding and good of the church. The church that is the very body of Christ. The church who will be the bride of Christ at the end of all things. And listen to me, nothing and no one will ever replace the church's place in the plan of God. Well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Folks, you can't. You can't. Nothing or no one will ever replace the church's place in the plan of God. And that's a really big deal, which is why we're going to spend the time in these three books that we do spend. Paul, Timothy, and the church, all part of God's plan and purpose for all eternity. And guess what? If you're a part of the church, if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus that means that you're an integral part of God's plan as well. You're like, not me, I'm I'm just nobody. We'll see as we go forward that that's not true. You were a nobody, and God through the work of Christ made you somebody. Not just somebody, somebody who's at the very center, the very central focus of His plan for all of eternity. And so we want to make sure we're doing this right. Not just Sunday morning but that we're doing church life right, which is why we're going to spend our time in these three books. And it's really good news, and we'll see it. So, three quick application points from what we've seen today. How do you apply what we've seen today? This is a little bit tricky, actually. Three Ps. It's Ps a lot, isn't it? And I I hate Ps. Paul, plan, people. Paul, plan, people. The application points are Paul plan, and people. Now, I don't want you to just remember the three application points. I want you to remember what you're supposed to do as a result of the application points. And the first one is Paul. We in no way want to glorify any man, including this apostle that we've talked about so much today. But we do want to glorify God 
as we see him at work through this man. If you have never, I beg of you, please, please, please invest some time in searching the Scriptures and watching the life of Paul unfold. What we did today was very quick, very broad. This man, Paul, wrote 13 books of our New Testament. We're Bible folk, right? We're Bible people. So the Bible's important to us. Paul wrote 13 books of your Bible. Which occupies about half of the New Testament because his story is also told in about half the book of Acts. And let me say this. Paul is a joy to learn about and to know. And we don't need new perspectives or new interpretation of Paul's writings or Paul's life. And those are out there. Don't waste your time with them. We need to know the man and his doctrine as laid out in the Scriptures. John Piper has a book he wrote called, literally, Why I Love the Apostle Paul. And he gives 30 reasons. You can download that book for free, by the way, in a PDF form on Desiring God's website. If you haven't been on DesiringGod.org, please go there. They have resources there out the wazoo. And most of them are for free. You can purchase physical copies, but you can download so much for free. Why I Love the Apostle Paul. And this is what Piper says in his introduction to that book. Can you really know a man who lived 2,000 years ago? We have 13 letters that he wrote and a short travel log of his ministry, the book of Acts, written by his personal physician, Luke. And my answer is, Piper says, yes, you can know him. And when you get to know him, you will either love him and believe him or hate him as an imposter or pity him as deceived or perhaps simply be oblivious that you are dealing with a real man, end of quote. I use this quote and have this application point mostly just for your joy, literally, my joy too, but also because the Apostle Paul has been the subject of so much slander and hatred over the years. He's been accused of heresy, sexism, chauvinism. chauvinism. He's been accused of being a cult leader, which you can get it right. He went to the desert and received a direct revelation from God. And he's been slandered and accused of a million other things. And I would guess, sitting here, if you've done any kind of work about Paul and his life, you have an opinion about him in some of his writings. But the main point I want to drill home is that he is an inspired apostle. You know what that word apostle means? One sent. Who was he sent by? We saw in our coverage today through the book of Acts, he was sent by God himself. And in the ancient Roman world, when the apostle spoke, it was as if it were the very words of the one who sent him. Apostles weren't only in the church. Governors would send apostles. Leaders would send apostles. Households would send apostles. And if an apostle showed up and said, this is what my guy who sent me said, everybody said, okay, I'm listening to the words of the one who sent you. I'm not listening to your words. And Paul is an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ. So regardless of what your opinions of him are, 
regardless of what your opinions about his writing are, when Paul speaks in the Bible, they are the very words of God. And we need to let that sit there for a second. Well, I don't like what he says about blank, blank, blank. That's your problem. Not the problem of the words that he wrote. Or the doctrines that he lays out that you either like or don't like. Because they're the very words of God. Converted and commissioned by Jesus himself. What Paul writes is what God says in the Bible. It's not up for interpretation of man or accommodation of a culture. And we are going to come across some things in these church building pastoral epistles that are completely contrary to our culture and the things that this culture celebrates. Now my question to you as individuals for this application point is, whose side will you choose? Will you choose the culture side? Will you choose your own side? Or will you choose the side of the inspired apostle? And be very careful how you answer that question. Watch this. Watch what Peter says. 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. Therefore, beloved, Peter says, Since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him, Christ, without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now watch this. There are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. And now watch this. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. As they do the other scriptures. Do you realize the weight that Peter is putting on Paul's writings? You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Paul, uh, Peter foresaw, hey, there's people who are struggling with some of the things that Paul's writing, but you need to understand if you distort and twist that for your own good, it's to your own destruction. And if you don't wrestle with what he says and come to grips with it, you're not going to be stable in your faith. That's a big deal. I don't know why I did that. That's a big deal. And Peter recognized that. And he said, deal with the writings of Paul and understand that they are scriptures. And if you don't deal with them, you're going to be unstable. And if you twist them to seat your own desires, you're going to be destroyed in your faith. Instability and destruction are not goals for my faith. Thank you very much. So I'll work hard to figure out what Paul was saying and why he was saying them. So that's Paul. Plan is the second one. This one's much shorter. Listen to me. This is so great. God's plan is perfect. And so often makes zero sense to us. Look at this progression with Paul and what we've looked at today. He was ravaging the church of Jesus. And then Jesus changed him. And that was always God's plan. 
We read Galatians 1, 11 through 17 earlier, and we're going to look at that again. Paul says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. While Paul was ravaging the church, while Paul was on the road to Damascus, God's plan was unfolding perfectly. Don't lose sight of God's plan when things don't make sense or, or when things seem like they're out of control. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. All things are being worked together according to the counsel of His will. His plan is perfect. Rest in that church. And if you're not in the church, if you're not a believer, wrestle with that. Paul, plan, and finally, people. Who's the central figure in that plan? Of course, Christ is the central figure. But Jesus Christ uses people. And his people make up the church. And the church is absolutely integral in the plan of God to glorify himself for all eternity. God uses the church, and the church is made up of people. The church is not a building. It's not an organization. The church is an organism, the very body and soon-to-be bride of Christ. And through these pastoral epistles, we are going to see how to function biblically in faithfulness to the commands and directions set forth by the master builder, Christ himself, as seen through the words of the inspired Apostle. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. You read it at the beginning. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says to Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And I'll finish with this. We talked about it Wednesday and the Wednesday before, but we're going to finish with this. Of this gospel, Ephesians 3, 7 to 11, I was made a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring delight for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is precious. Church is valuable. Church is powerful. And we are that church. 
and we will operate according to the words that he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for your plan, and we thank you for your people. Help us, God. Open our eyes, our hearts, our lives to receive what you have for us in these three letters. And may we operate according to the plan that you have laid out. May we be the people that you've called us to be, empowered by your Holy Spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. Help us, we ask. And if there be anybody who's sitting here this morning that does not trust you, may they have that experience that Paul had. May you show up, Holy Spirit, and bring them to life. Open their eyes by closing their eyes to the things of the world and giving them revelation of who you are and what you've done. Jesus, you've done it all, and it's enough, and we praise you for it. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.